0: All right, today we are in our Acts series. We're almost done with our Acts series. And we are going to be talking about this really interesting story. So if you've got your Bible, turn to Acts 15. We've been talking about just the journey of the first church being created. Last week we talked about Paul's blinding road on Damascus experience. And then today we're going to pick up Paul's story, I don't know, about 10 years down the road from that, um, where he and Barnabas have their falling out. So has anybody ever heard a message on Paul and Barnabas's argument? Me neither. So this will be fun. We'll be uh, charting some new territory together. I'm excited about this message because essentially what I'm going to be sharing with you today is something called Supernatural Life Cycles. And if you've never heard of that, that's okay. I had never heard of that term either. I made it up. So um, essentially, I didn't make up the term life cycle. But this is something that I've been seeing happening in my own life. And I've quizzed a lot of you guys when we get into this, you'll go, oh, I remember her asking me about this. Um, And and it's something that the Lord's kind of shaped around for me. And so we're going to talk about how everything in the kingdom has a starting point and usually has an ending point as well. So we're going to use this story to talk about. All right. So Acts 15, verse 36. I'm going to be reading from the Passion Translation. We're going to read 36 through 41. So a little bit of background, Paul and Barnabas, Paul had gotten saved, we talked about that last week, and then everybody did not want him near them, right? The new believers thought he was a sociopath or some, you know, crazy things, and they did not want him in their midst, and Barnabas steps up and he vouches for Paul. So most of you guys probably know this, that story, but Barnabas was an exhorter, he was an encourager, and he also had, what I see in his life is he had a gifting from the Lord to identify what your destiny was, and his calling was to come alongside of you to help you achieve that destiny, okay? So he was a father in the kingdom. He was not a passive person. Sometimes we think of people who are encouragers as really sweet, passive, you know, just very gentle people. I don't think Barnabas was like that. He and Paul were going into incredibly dark places to preach the gospel. There would be a lot of boldness required for that type of calling, and so Barnabas steps up. He becomes a bridge between Paul and the believers, and he he basically does for Paul what his calling is. He identifies, man, you're called to be a missionary and do amazing things. I'm going to come alongside of you to help you grow up into that thing, okay? So that's the backstory. They've been together for several years. The Holy Spirit had appointed them the chapter before we read um appointed them to be a ministry team okay a lot of people look at Paul and we have this thought that Paul because he's dominant because he's zealous because he's outspoken that he was sort of the one traveling minister by himself but actually that's not true Paul had a tremendous value for team ministry. He very rarely, if ever, went anywhere by himself. And in fact, we see in other chapters that he chose not to plant a church because his teammates were not there with him. And some would say because he did not want them to see God as only how he could represent God, but he wanted that church to experience the fullness of who God would be, which can't be identified in one person, which we've talked about all this before. But so he has a, a true value for being in a team setting All right, so that's some backstory. Here we go, verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, they'd been in Jerusalem hanging out, uh, he said to Barnabas, let's travel to the regions where we've preached the word of God and see how the believers are getting along. Barnabas wished to take Mark, also known as John, your translation may say John Mark, along with them. Paul disagreed. He didn't think it was proper to take the one who had deserted them in south-central Turkey, leaving them to do their missionary work without him. It became a heated argument between them, a disagreement so sharp that they parted with each other from each other. Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus and Paul chose Silas as his partner. After the believers prayed for them, asking for the Lord's favor on their ministry, they left for Syria and southeast Turkey. Every place they went, the church every place they went, they left the church stronger and more encouraged than before. So here's what's happening. On their first missionary tour, Paul and Barnabas asked this guy, John Mark, Mark, John, however you want it, whatever your translation says, we'll call him John Mark. He asks John Mark to come with him. John Mark says, okay, and then he, he can't take it. It's too intense for him. Okay, they were in some really dark places, some serious persecution, and John Mark freaks out and he deserts them. So now Paul has this great idea. Obviously, Paul and Barnabas finished their journey together. Paul has this great idea. Hey, let's go back to all of these places and let's strengthen the churches. Just imagine, you know, 2,000 years ago, there's no real way to have real-time feedback of how somebody's doing. Even if you write a letter, there's a couple days lag time in there. So they thought it was a great idea. Barnabas agrees. So now here's where their giftings come into play. Okay, and this is how I want you to see this story. Barnabas is ever the father. He is ever the reconciler. That is his calling from God. So he sees this as the prime opportunity to restore Mark, John Mark, to his calling. John Mark clearly had a missionary calling. Both Paul and Barnabas agreed on that, right? They invited him to come on their first leg of the trip. And so they see that in him. And so Barnabas looks at this and he goes, oh, here's how we're going to restore him. He's had this huge failure. It wasn't a moral failure, but it was an emotional failure, right? It was something that he would have probably really affected him and even his reputation with other people and whatnot. And so it's clearly because they put it in the story that it was widely known, And so Barnabas says, this is the opportunity. We're going to restore Mark back to that calling of being a missionary, and we're going to give him another opportunity. And Barnabas, I'm guessing, was probably thinking something like, it's easier now because there's churches in these places, right? It'll be a little more comforting for him. So that's Barnabas' ever the father, ever the reconciler coming out. Now, Paul on the flip side is, is, now remember, sometimes we can read the story and think Paul was just being really just a brat like, no, he can't come. No, think about this through the way their giftings work, okay? Paul is a breaker. He is someone who has no problem going in the darkest place and standing for truth. He is zealous. He's dominant. He's aggressive in a good way. None of these are bad traits that I'm saying, and so he's looking at it and saying failure is a big deal to him, right? Not failing is a big deal to Paul, okay? And and being willing to sacrifice your life and your body is a big deal to Paul. Clearly, he preaches about that later on in other books. So Paul looks at the situation and he goes, we cannot we cannot allow John Mark to have a potential failure again. What if he fails again and he cannot fulfill his calling? I think that's what's happening here. I don't think Paul felt like Mark isn't supposed to be a missionary. He clearly agreed that was a calling on his life, right? When they invited him the first time around. And so they have a fundamental disagreement over their own callings and their own giftings clashing. All these years before, their callings and their giftings melded together really beautifully. But now all of a sudden, it was like the grace of their team relationship had dried up. And now they're having to deal with this clash. We'll fix this. Hold on. And so that's what's happening here. Okay, so they've been in—they've been in connection. They've been working together. All of a sudden, the grace is dried up, and it's gone. Right? There's frustration there, and they get into a heated argument. So I want to say, it'll take a second to just kick off. It'll, it's just the air conditioner squeaking. So give it about a minute. It'll turn off. So I wanna say this about Paul and Barnabas' dynamic. They clearly were very close, they traveled together a lot, right? They were close enough to have a heated a heated argument. Anybody have a friend in your life that you've had a heated argument with that you've been able to stay friends with beyond? right? I believe that's really the goal of friendship, not that like, you know, we should be able to be rude to each other by any means, but that we're real enough that when something, when push comes to shove and not so pretty things come out of us, that your relationship can hang on in the midst of that. I personally believe this was not Paul and Barnabas's first heated argument, right? I mean, Paul was a, pretty heated guy. And so this is probably not the first time that they butted heads about something. But in this disagreement, something came about that caused them to part ways. And I honestly do not believe this was a bitter thing or a difficult or a sad thing. I think what happened was in their disagreement, they realized My calling is so solidified, who I'm called to be, what I'm called to do, and I can't compromise that. And Barnabas is over here saying the same thing. This is who I am. I am a father. I'm a reconciler. I cannot compromise that. And they realized in that moment that their team relationship had dissolved from the Lord. And so what was a division actually became a multiplication because Uh, Barnabas takes Mark and he goes on and he actually does with Mark what he felt like the Lord was calling him to do. He reestablishes Mark as a missionary so much so that later on Paul sees value in Mark and brings him onto his team. That's Barnabas's work right Barnabas's willingness to say hey this is what God is calling me to do and then Paul chooses Silas and eventually Timothy as well so i want to i want you guys to look at it this way instead of this big dramatic breakdown of a relationship it actually was a multiplication that invited more people into the work of the ministry than when they started that Silas and Timothy were given a place to be missionaries to be church planners when they maybe hadn't had an obvious place when Paul and Barnabas were together So the reason why I I feel like the Lord is highlighting this story is because there's something about life cycles that I think we all need to be aware of. And it's, it's essentially what it sounds like. There's a beginning and an ending to most things in life right we see this in nature all the time a seed goes into the ground it sprouts it, it you know yields fruit of some sort and then it dies that's a life cycle a butterfly there's so many things i could mention that all carry these life cycles but i think in and, and our own beings right we are conceived we are born and we eventually we die we are a life cycle as well and in the natural that's playing out just as it's happening in relational settings Friendships, marriages, parenting, churches, all of these kinds of things. And so I want to dig into that a little bit for you. Genesis 29 is the story of Jacob uh, working for Laban to win Rachel's heart. You guys all familiar with this story? He sees Rachel. He wants to marry her. He, uh, Laban says, okay, seven years, you have to work for me. Jacob says, all right, I'll do it. And then he gets bamboozled, shows up, it's Leah. You know, then he has to work another seven years for Rachel. And there's, and there's something in him when you read that story where you can see Jacob's heart cringing at the fact that he's serving another man's vision when he wants to be serving his own. Okay so I heard this a few years ago that and I actually believe this is where it comes from I think in this Genesis 29 story there's a prophetic um, application for all of us that a man or a woman that we can only serve someone else's vision for around seven years, approximately seven years. okay we see that in Genesis. There's other examples of that in the Bible as well but there's this sort of life cycle of servantness that has this application to that time frame, okay? trying to decide how spiritual we'll take it. I'll just leave it simple. All right. So you've got about a seven-year time frame. So we see this in Jacob's life. Now I want you to take a second and think for yourself. Have you ever decided to move a job? Okay. Just dying inside. I've got to get out of here. I can't take it anymore. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you that happened around the six to eight-year mark? It's really phenomenal if you stop to actually look at it and you can start tracing and going, well, I was all about it, man. I loved that vision. And then you get around year five, year six, you start to have your own vision. By year seven, you're like, get me out of here. I cannot do this anymore. You have to have a new vision to say yes to, right? So we see that with Jacob's life. I think that's what's happening with Paul and Barnabas. Now, we don't know the exact dates of it, but it's around that six to eight year mark. It's fascinating to me. And so there is this natural life cycle that happens in us where we, we can only serve someone's vision for about that time. Now, I'm not saying that you can't stay longer than that. I actually think you can. But when that like, longing in you comes up, it has to be satisfied in some way. Right. You have to have a new buy-in to the vision. You have to be given a different part of the vision, if that makes sense. If you're in business and you run your own business and you've been in business for that long, there's gonna be a point where you have to re-up. Okay, I wanna keep doing this, right? I wanna keep serving this vision that I'm going for. So that's a life cycle. So I I felt like the Lord was highlighting, you know, we're moving into the summer where um, it's anniversary season for a lot of people. And I felt like the Lord wanted me to share a little bit about life cycles in a marriage context. So I understand that this is going to be something some of you guys totally catch, some of you guys may not catch at all, that's okay. But I've been applying this life cycle concept to my marriage for the last seven years, and it's blown me away, and it's essentially this, that in the same way that we can serve another person's vision for around seven years, this isn't hard and fast, you know, law, but it's just, it's a generalization, that in our marriages, there are life cycles as well. Did you know the average divorce, the average, um, marriage length before divorce is between six to eight years. So when you start to tie this all together, you think, well, this is really interesting. There's a natural thing that's happening in our bodies and in our brains that about every seven years, we become someone else. I may have shared this with you guys before, but I was watching an interview years ago with this couple who had been married 60 years, and the interviewer said to them, um, they said, you know, what's the secret of your marriage? What's the secret of your success? And the man, he chuckled and he said, oh, I've been married to about seven different women. And the you know, reporter was like, what? T- like taken aback. And, uh, and she, she kind of was stunned. And the wife started chuckling and the husband continued. And he said, yeah, about every seven years, my wife has become someone else and I've had to recommit to her all over again. And you're all laughing because you know it's true. And I was so blown away by the wisdom in that, even though he was being silly and kind of fun. But I realized it's so true. When we're talking about the scope of a marriage, we marry someone for who they are today, right? One of the best pieces of advice I got when I was 19 years old thinking about getting married, and somebody said to me, you cannot marry the dream of what you think that person can become right? You have to marry them who they actually are. Everybody has potential. We can all say, oh, wow, you can, you have the potential to become this and this and this, but you can't marry the potential or you're going to be in trouble. You got to marry them for who they are today. Even if they never achieve that potential, that has to be okay with you, right? Because once you get married, then all of a sudden you realize it's not quite as, you know, the grass isn't quite as green as you had hoped it would be when you see someone's real person come out. Hopefully you see that before too, but... You guys know what I mean. So in this, in this context, when you get married, okay, you marry them for who they are today, but there's no way you can fathom who they're going to be after they become a parent, after they have difficult circumstances that come up. We change, right? If you've been married for any length of time, you know at some point there's going to be a change where you start going, wait a second, who I thought I married is not who I'm actually married to. And in that moment, if you can recognize the life cycle component to that, I think it will actually be really helpful for you. For me, what happened in my relationship was we've been through, we're going to be married 14 years this summer and we've been through three. So do that math. That doesn't work, um, some accelerated life cycles, I guess, in ours. But about seven years ago is when I cra- we crashed and burned. And I've told this story to you guys before where I was just kind of at the point of like, I don't know if I can um, continue in this relationship without putting up really dramatic walls. That was kind of where I was at. I don't want to be away from you. I just, I just, am, I don't like, you know, you kind of get to that point where you're like, I don't know if, if I have to accept you for who you are today and how this is going to play out against and for and affect my own life. So we started going to some counseling, and what happened in that time frame was I have to recommit to you to who you are today, which is someone completely different than who I committed to at the beginning right? And so then a few months ago, we were in another phase of, you know, most of you guys that know us know the last two years have been pretty much insane for us and the things that God is having us do. And it's just a very different life than we've ever lived before. And so a few months ago, I was finding myself really frustrated in my marriage. And I was like, it wasn't even that I was mad at him. I was just more of like, I don't know how to wrap my mind around everything that God's doing in your business. Like I married you when we made a commitment to be church planters. Okay. I'm just being totally honest. Right. And so now that there's this business piece that's a huge part of our relationship, it's like it affects me in ways that I have to learn some things that I wasn't really thinking I would ever learn in my life. So we've been in kind of a a frustrated conversation, you know, the kind that's not really an argument, but you're like, I don't know, it's like late at night, and you're like, do I want to continue having this? I'll just table it for another time. And as I was going to to bed that night, I was talking with the Lord and saying, God, help me understand in my heart, what is this that I'm feeling? Like I'm, I'm frustrated, but it's got to be rooted in something else, right? And because, you know, if, at least for me, it's like, okay, here's this amazing man who has this amazing godly man. So there's no reason for me to be super frustrated. So help me identify. Okay, that's what it was about. So the Lord started speaking to me again about this life cycle thing. And I realized, wow, we're about five months away from our 14-year marriage mark. And all of a sudden, the frustration and the pressure of the frustration alleviated understanding that we've come to an end of one cycle and we're starting another one. Does that make sense? And so the reason why I want to share this with you guys today is because I'm hoping that as you navigate all of your anniversaries that are coming up and all the different relational things that you have going on, just keep this in mind when it starts to be frustrating. Because there is this component of when life happens and you change and you grow into someone else, you have to recommit to that person all over again, right? You have to say, okay, now today, because of all these things that we've been through and how that's affected you, am I willing to continue to say, let's be really close in our hearts? right? You can stay married and be neighbors, <laughs> right? It's not, I'm not talking about, you know, what, what's happening with your actual marriage. I'm talking about what's happening in your heart. So the life cycle thing. Same with parenting for those of you guys that are parents. Something, the way that you parent as when you have a little toddler is totally different than how you parent a 10-year-old, a teenager, a college student, an adult child with kids, There are life cycles involved in that. I'm just bringing these things up so that you guys can begin to see the pattern here. In your friendships, there's times with our friends where a set of friends in high school that were totally, you know, they clicked with you, everything was great. As you grow and experience new things, as God takes you deeper because he is constantly always authoring your faith to move you closer to him, more like him, some of those old friendships don't always line up anymore, right? And so when we can begin to say, listen, let me pause let me put it this way. What I don't see happening in this story with Paul and Barnabas is that unity takes on a sort of communistic approach, right? That we have to be identical, that we have to be always together, that unity happens in the place of diversity, That's real unity, right? And Paul preaches about unity so much. So I think it's silly to assume that he allowed himself to be divisive, but then later on told everybody else they had to be unified. So we have to look at this through the lens of, so what are they talking about in unity in the midst of their separation? I believe they're talking about there's a place where people come into your life for a time and then it's okay to move on in other places. We can do that with a blessing. We can do that with good stuff. It doesn't have to become a bitter thing. So even in our friendships, I was listening to a prophetic word last fall where they were talking about how the Lord is taking you, um, it was like a corporate prophetic word, and he said, the Lord is taking you to a new place, and when you get there, you'll find that you need new friends, and then the rest of the word said, "Um, but don't worry, the Lord has those planned for you as well, and at the time, I thought to myself, that seems so counterintuitive to our current day and age, social media, church life, where it's like, man, if I'm connected to you, I have to stay connected to you forever, right? Or I was Facebook friends with you eight years ago when I was this way, and now the Lord's grown me into this type of a person, and we're still Facebook friends, but it's just weird because we're not in each other's lives anymore, and we've grown apart, and it's actually a really good growing, and so you have to be willing to say, is it okay to acknowledge that this cycle of life that was good here has ended? One other um, area that I want to touch on with this is when you leave a church, so we are a church, clearly, right? When Grant and I were moving up here to plant this church, one of the best pieces of advice I've ever received in, about ministry was from a pastor who'd been in ministry for 20-plus years, a long time. And he said, listen, every person that comes through the door of your church is going to leave through the back door at some point. And he said, your goal is not to keep them in the building. The goal of your, you know, the goal of your church is not to hold them in the building, but when they leave, that they're closer to Jesus They're better people than when they came in the door. And he said, the reality is people, some people are going to come in and out in one Sunday and they won't come back again. How are you connecting them closer to the Lord? Some people, it'll be a three or four month time frame. Some people, a few years. Some people, they'll leave through the back door in a casket because they went on with Jesus, right? And so it's not like you can't stay at some place for a really long time, but it was such a shift in our thinking as pastors to be able to say, okay, then everything in life has a life cycle. And so is it possible, you guys heard me preach this several weeks ago about the rainbow God analogy and how God looks at the city and all the different churches that are there. You can catch it on the podcast if you haven't heard that. But is it possible that when God looks, he can see in your life, this is what you need in this time frame and this church is the best place to put that in you. And then when that life cycle concludes, he can move you to somewhere else and say, now this is the best place for me to put what's inside of you right? It happens. We don't like to talk about it because sometimes in our Christian culture, we're still thinking we have to keep everybody in the room. But if we start to look at churches as tunnels that you pass through, then it becomes less about territorial weirdness and more about what's going on in your life, what is God doing, and where do you need to be to connect with that? I can tell you some of the most fascinating conversations that we've had with people in our, in the four and a half years of the life of this church, is when they leave and they move on and to see and to be able to acknowledge, wow, this is true. God is calling you to this, you know, and it may look totally different. It may be sort of confounding to our minds, but it's always the Lord, almost always. You know, very rarely does somebody leave because they're really upset. They leave because there's something stirring in them that the Lord. But then we complicate that in church life by making it about us and them and all of that. You guys know what I'm saying? Most of you know because I know your stories and you know my story. And it becomes this weird thing where it's like, wait, was it ever supposed to be that? If we can acknowledge the life cycle component to it, then we can do what Paul and Barnabas did and bless each other and go with what God is doing. There was an urgency happening in their day and age where it wasn't just that people were dying and going to hell, but they were also serving slave labor demon gods. Their culture was so awful. There was like cultures around them in these cities that were doing child sacrifices. We've been to one of these places in Israel where it's called the gates of hell, and this is actually what they're referencing when they talk about the gates of hell in the New Testament when Jesus does. But what they would do was they would take a baby and they would throw it in this pool of water. And if the baby sunk and did not come back up, they counted that as a sacrifice that was accepted from that God. And if the baby came back up, although it would be dead, then they would have to do it again. This is like ridiculous awfulness, right? So that their child sacrifice. And so there's an urgency that Paul and Barnabas are holding in their heart that they have to go to teach these people about who Jesus is so that these kinds of things don't happen anymore. There's not a place for that in the world anymore. And that urgency supersedes their own relational frustration, Are you guys tracking with me? So when we look at this story this way, it takes on a whole new meaning, to me anyway. As I was praying through this this week, I felt like the Lord was just highlighting just the nature of Oklahoma City, which I love. I love living here. I never thought I would live here. I'm a transplant, you know, but I actually really love it. I feel like this is my home forever. But there's an interesting thing that happens here where we're a very moral people. We're a very God-aware people, but we're not necessarily a very Christ-like people. Okay, you're all nodding, so you know what I mean, right? There's this idea around here, we're in the buckle of the Bible belt, and there's this idea that we're all sort of like moral people like we have an awareness of what's right and wrong you know i i told you guys a few weeks ago well you can't do this you can't do that you can't do that and then you're a christian right but christ likeness and relationship with jesus is not something that's happening in in droves around i think it's starting to happen there's definitely the lord is doing some amazing things in the churches around but in terms of at the tipping point we're not quite there yet right so what would it look like if we began to look at our city with the same urgency that paul and barnabas looked at their cities How would that affect the relational challenges that we have when life cycles end? How would it affect when all of a sudden now there's an urgency that I need to go and share with people about what's really going on so you're no longer serving a God, a religion God that's telling you you have to do this and do this and that, and that's how you're okay. No, I, we can say to you, that's not Jesus. Jesus is saying you're okay just as you are. He's inviting you to come into a relationship with him, right? And that urgency for that supersedes or, or comes over and sort of blankets any type of disunity that we might have, and it helps us get our heads on straight. You guys tracking with me? It's interesting to me. So I'm not going to harp on this for a really long time, but I wanted to share, with this, share this with you guys because I feel like there's an element where when we begin to look at the life cycle component, it actually helps alleviate some of the pressure in life, at least for me. That pressure of relationships, pressure to try to like stay connected to people that the Lord has ended that, and to be able to look at it and say two completely opposing people can actually be both right at times in the kingdom. Of course, there's things, biblically speaking, that are the right answer. There's absolute truth there, but there's also a lot of nuance. So let's talk about Israel for a second. Can you be pro-Israel and pro-Palestine and both be talking about the heart of God? Yeah, you can, right? Because you're looking at the people. So I guess my heart in this is just to help you guys see that in in the context of all the disagreements that you could have, can you begin to look at it through the lens of God? Can you begin to add this component of life cycles and how that all, when things actually do end and, and allow us to get to a place where we can agree to disagree, you know? And to be able to honor each other, to be able to respect each other, even if we don't land in the exact same place. That's my heart for us as we're moving towards getting community groups up and running in the next um, few weeks. You know, that's my heart for that, too, that you would be able to be fully yourself and also be able to let somebody else be fully themselves. Right. And have honor be in the midst of that. So the last thing I want to say about this. Um, is, you know, multiplication was the goal, in my opinion, when I read this, that was always the goal from the Lord, to add more people into what God was doing in the missionary thing, so he connected Paul and Barnabas for a specific purpose, to train them up, to teach them, they could learn from each other, and then he moved them on to add more people in right? And so it's not actually a bad thing. It's actually a blessed thing from the Lord, and they went on to actually be able to go to new cities and more cities, and the gospel was spread on a much more grander level because they were willing to acknowledge that what God was doing in the midst of it, even if it wasn't what they were trying to do. I, I, I don't know if I said this already or not, but I think if we look at what Paul and Barnabas were experiencing together, what would it have been like if they were just convinced that the only answer was for them to stay together? right? Like if they were convinced that the godly option was that they were together and in complete unity in all their thoughts. Man, can you imagine what would happen in Mark's life? What could have happened in Silas and Timothy's life? And so we just have to begin to see it that way. So multiplication was the goal. And the last thing I wanted to just consider is what has ended in your life that God wants to actually multiply? If multiplication is the goal, when we end a life cycle, it's, I, I believe the spiritual math side, right, the God component, is that when something ends, it's it, it has the potential to be exponential the second time around, the fourth time around, right? And so is there something in your life, a relationship or, um, you know, like a friendship or a church relationship or uh maybe a, a session of your marriage, right, a life cycle in your marriage that's ended and you need to re-up and look at it again. And and what, what in that is God ready to multiply? And I think if we can look at it through that perspective, we can have joy and hope and expectation. So for me personally, you know, I shared about my marriage a minute ago, and when I was looking forward and saying, okay, Lord, then what does this next cycle look like? Honestly, to look at it like that brought so much hope and joy and expectation in my heart. And it became less about, man, Lord, can you make him into what I I want you to make him into, and more about teach me how to see what's so incredible about what you're doing in this season. Two completely different ways to look at it, right? Teach me how to, how to like, like, Lord, I know this is you, so how can I come in line and be supportive and, and find what you're doing in the midst of our relationship instead of making this an us and them type situation? We all know that marriages struggle. They just do. It's really hard to live with someone all the time right? And to lay your heart out on the table in that way. It's difficult. I don't know why more pastors don't share about the reality of marriages, because I can tell you I've never met one that has never had a struggle in their marriage. It's just not there. I mean, I think there's a a tendency to want to be like, oh, we're so great, because then we want you to have hope that you can be so great. But in my opinion, when you hear that Jesus can come in the midst of the hardship, it actually gives you more hope. That's kind of how, for me anyway... And so I want you to be able to see, hey, even for your pastors, when they struggle, there's a hope component that comes in there when we begin to push towards Jesus and see it through God's eyes, and it actually becomes even better than it was before. And so now a few months down the road, for me, it's really comfortable to be able to say, wow, Lord, this is amazing right? I'm discovering what you were doing. I'm, I'm beginning to see. And we're not fully there yet. We're still trying to figure it out. We're still navigating. You know, last night we had another conversation of like, how is this going to work in this season? And just all the things we're committed to and whatnot. But we're determined to see God do what he's doing in this cycle of our life. And it helps alleviate all the frustrations in the midst of that. So, that's my question to you as we wrap this up is what's ended in your life that God wants to multiply and if you're married and this is hitting you in a you know in your heart a little bit then just explore that with the Lord this week. Lord, you know, what is it about this season? What have you been doing in my spouse that I've been kind of looking at as an aggravation because it affects me <laughs> and I need to look at look at it as a joy. I need to look at it as a good thing even if it doesn't feel so good in the moment. So I'm going to pray for you guys. Um, If you need prayer, if you need prayer for healing at all, I want to pray for you. Um, After I shared the words of knowledge, Teresa was like, actually, I have that foot pain. And so we prayed at the beginning of worship, and she was totally healed. So that was awesome. So if you need um, healing prayer, Makobi will be up here. You know, he loves to see people healed. So you can come up there. If you you need prayer for your marriage or for any relationships that are going on, I'll stay up here, and I would love to pray for you for that. Um, But yeah short and sweet today. So Lord, I'm just asking for all of us that we would begin to see how you move in the life cycles of our life. Lord, I pray that this, that the things that you're wanting us to pay attention to and to see would truly come to the forefront of our minds. God, give us grace. Teach us how to disagree well. Teach us how to love well. Teach us how to understand our calling like Paul and Barnabas did and to be unapologetic about that in, in a loving way. Lord, we ask that um, Yeah, that this week would just be a week that is full of your mercy and your grace and your joy. And I pray over every person that's struggling in a mental capacity this week, Lord, that there would be a breakthrough in Jesus' name. Amen. Happy Memorial Day. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.